0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast and in our very first episode we're talking to global tech ethnographer Trisha Wong. Yeah, I said that correctly. Global tech ethnographer, what on earth is that? Basically, it's the study of how humans interact with technology and data, which means... She can tell us whether we're getting it right or we've been getting it wrong. Listen to the tips and tricks from a global expert, why big data might just be a lie, how to find meaning in the information that you're collecting, spend less time on reporting and understand how cool the department of the unknown is. Ladies and gentlemen, Trisha Wong, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human Podcast brought to you by Dynatrace. Trisha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. How does a data ethnographer, if that's what you call your professional, I want to go into that, but I see boxes in the background and they're color-coded.
1: This is the physical manifestation of my database for moving. So you're looking at my Airtable in real time and i've color coded every room and content and it's all in my database but i can also be here i'm one step away from like qr coding it but that was too much
0: oh my gosh <laughs> that's a little too hot. do you freak <laughs> out what are they called removalists in america or, or movers what do you call them
1: yeah movers Movers. It's, do you yeah.
0: freak them out because of your database and and whatnot
1: no i think they're relieved because it's like i'm doing my job to make sure my items are tracked you know so I won't be blaming them if things get lost or I will find out right away (laughs) if they get lost.
0: Ethnographer is a r- ginormous word. How, is this what you explain to people at dinner parties?
1: Ethnographer. Four syllables. And it is the worst word to say at dinner parties. But the reason, like no one knows what it is. But the reason why I say it is because like, I didn't have any other job title. As like, I am not just purely a data scientist. You know, I'm not just a strategist. I'm not just a marketer. I'm not just a designer. Which those all those things on its own are amazing. But it's like, I'm a little bit of everything. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'll just make up a job title. And then, and I'll find out very quickly if people are listening or not because when I say it that I'm a tech ethnographer or data ethnographer if you say oh great that means you're clearly not listening because no one knows what the hell that is yeah, that's a good <laughs> and tip. then and then if you if you're curious and you're actually listening you want to know you'll ask why and then we can get into a real conversation you know which is cool and like I would say most half and half you know you never know but it's a great sorting mechanism and that's totally okay too no judgment because sometimes you don't want to talk about work you know and it's just like a nervous twitch especially in America to be like what do you do and that's like the worst question I think to ask someone <laughs> You know yeah. when you meet someone it's like you're, then you're gonna tie your identity to my work and i have to pick the right thing to introduce myself but it's like someone like me um where there's a lot of people like me where you just have a million different job identities i can decide what to say in one context but then it's just like oh my like, please don't ask me what i do but if i'll tell you it's a tech ethnographer and ethnography means the study of people it's a scientific study of people observing people and being a data or tech ethnographer means i love how people and organizations make decisions with data and use technology. Uh, So that's, it's essentially, it's like, I love watching people and I found a way to make a profession out of it. And that's what you learn as an anthropologist or sociologist is how to be an ethnographer. It's one of the many qualitative skills that you learn.
0: You're scaring me now because I want to come back to more of the ethnography, but I think now that you're like analyzing people, all of a sudden i got this like, oh my gosh i'm doing we're always
1: watching yeah always every little finger tick that you do i'm seeing you
0: you are real right you're not one of these deep fake ai bots i could be we had a couple of fast four questions to warm you up and get you ready and we didn't tell you what they were going to be which i know i'm dreading
1: this part i'm like great go start it let's do this
2: (laughs) let's go so three dinner party guests dead or alive
1: dead or alive I would want to have Thich Nhat Hanh in a room um he's one of my favorite Buddhist writers uh-huh. and he talks about how you know why we have suffering because we just center ourselves and everything um i would really really want to have barbara smith who's alive she created the term black feminism and she was the first to give people a language for understanding intersectionality and that you can't not to be a single issue organizer that it's not just about race it's about race and economic um and gender when you're we're fighting for equality and i think um The third person I would invite to dinner would be Septima Clark, who was the invisible person um, behind the civil rights organizing um, that Martin Luther King did. She set up um, literacy programs and like actually taught people how to read so that they could vote. And so many people celebrate someone like Martin Luther King, which he's amazing, but there's um, Civil Rights Movement was built on the amazing organizing work of many women, in particular, black women.
0: Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Very impressive
2: list, yes. And so, biggest inspiration then? Uh,
1: I think, you know, this is like, I'm thinking of Oprah Winfrey because I literally just watched her interview with Meghan Markle. (laughs) I don't know if anyone else has seen that but oprah winfrey's life story is incredible she went from being someone who was sexually abused and you know being like closed, like in a time where no one would hire um black women she just kept pushing um open doors and she is someone who brings everyone together um is very inclusive and i think she's also an amazing interviewer because i think um interviewing like what you all are doing it requires a lot of skills and that you have to know the person you have to ask questions but also not center yourself but keep it going like i think she's incredible pulling out the human stories and people so i'm gonna say her (laughs) because that's all that's i literally just watch a megan markle interview (laughs) i haven't seen i know know. i'm not
0: (laughs) i i know another shock we it has been all over the news here but I, i i don't know i just haven't had the i don't know i haven't i'm sorry I, I know, this you know is
1: sure. I, i'm not into that all that history but i was like i'm into history where if you're telling me somebody controls all the land in england and no one owns things and you have like that much money and resources like i'm interested in institutions and how they built yes. up all that power the firm so that's and, cool
0: you know, and
2: and the, we should be watching it because yeah there's still part of sovereign. The yeah
0: <laughs> we are part of it and the i mean the, the royal family or whatever that tv show that was on netflix that was like the number oh, one the show crown. the crown yeah and I was really addicted good. to it. Like oh, if you've it watched
1: awesome. that, you have to watch a Meghan Markle interview. Then. I know. Oh, all right,
2: next one is, what is your advice to your 16-year-old self? It's a bit intense. Oh, but...
1: this is a really good one. Um, My advice to my 16-year-old self is, I think would have been, I just wish someone had told me that you really should invest in meditating. Like, it's so not cool, but it is like if I had learned the skills of meditating and like truly harnessing your energy and, and not just meditating, like sitting there, meditating, but like really understanding why and how that's connected to your energy and learning how to like um, self-regulate better <laughs> and not freak out. Yeah, I think I would have been better in life, like just in personal relationships, everything, like just learning I think- how to value that much earlier on.
2: That's true. I think they do that a lot more. My kids are getting taught about self regulation and mindfulness, and we never had that.
0: And I have my—that's Oh, incredible. My kids use the Headspace app all the time, so they and I can. What? Yeah, they really are active kids, and they lay down, and I can hear. I go, "Do you want me to put Headspace on for you?" And they're like, "Yeah, yes, please, Dad." And I'll put it on, and I can hear them breathing, and so
1: that's good. Yeah. How old are your kids?
0: Uh eight and ten.
1: Claire, eight and six. Okay. Oh, yeah. very similar. That's yeah. incredible. You all are amazing parents. Yeah, well. um, yeah I wish. <laughs> <This> morning <laughs> like getting maybe out the door.
0: The, <laughs> maybe like... the fact that they need headspace <laughs> is probably where the bad parenting comes <laughs> yeah. from. But no. Oh,
1: that's that's so. incredible. And since I can break the rule, I wish that someone explained compound interest to me oh, at a very young okay. age. Also, oh. and I wish I made decisions about compound interest yes. and just like. All those things that are like not so sexy that you've put in the adult box it's always like usually too like not too late but like it would have been great <laughs> if, yeah. to know about compound interest right. and you know learning how to manage your breath and breathe from the earth yeah. like would have been great tools <laughs> yes. um and last one finish this sentence
2: ai will
1: ai will uh fold my clothes oh. yeah. <laughs> I like it.
2: That's, a, That's good a creative one. Practical. One. The practical side comes out in the boxes and <laughs> <laughs> domestic. I, I like it. it. <laughs> um,
0: so switch gears now that we've got to know you a little bit yeah. which I think is fantastic um you talk a lot about big data you talk about enterprises the importance of human and insights coming into the analysis of data you also have talked about what's wrong with the current approach you, i think at one point in your ted talk you said over 70% or 73% of big data projects are unprofitable what's wrong with our approach <laughs>
1: So the way we approach data inside the enterprise, we we approach it as if we're still a very small company because data science wasn't born inside enterprise. You know, enterprises were actually some of the last companies to hire data scientists. And what they did was they just thought, literally, if you could hire a data scientist, plop in the corner, give them data, tell them to collect some stuff they could churn out like revenue for the company. And more or less, that is what companies have done. I would say that in the first phase of big data, there was a really big obsession around tools. It was very much like, you know, can we, um, how big of a data lake can you get? How big, how's your warehouse? Thinking about security, which are all totally important things. We have to build these tools to be able to analyze and collect um, large amounts of data. Are you on-prem, off-prem? You know, how, how much of it is in the cloud? All very important questions, right? But that is, that is very different from then the next phase that I've seen, which is very much about just being able to say that, like, that's, that's really just being data driven. The second phase of big data is about looking for patterns in the data. So that's like data 2.0. And so the first, you know, first phase of data was data 1.0, just collecting the data, like really obsession around the tools and the talent for that but we've been told this lie and that i think that's that's been perpetuated by you know thinkers of artificial uh, like neural networks like uh gregory hinton who created google brain is this professor who's incredible but what he did was he said look if you just throw enough data at the machine the machine will be able to tell you the patterns and that is the magic and that's why you like see you know all that um Um, from Google, deep brain, all those weird things where you see like it shows recursive levels of dogs of dogs. Because if you train the machine just on data about dogs, all it can see when you give it new images are other dogs, right? Because the machine will see what you want it to see. And for some reason, we think that's enough. There is this lie inside organizations. If we have just enough data, or if we have unlimited amount, like the more data we have, the better decisions we will make because then we'll have enough patterns coming out of the data and we'll know what to do. And that all sounds very logical, but what I'm trying to help enterprises understand is that that's not how you make decisions with data because if you're in data 1.0 where you just collect data, you're not understanding the patterns but even if you're in data 2.0 you're actually looking for the patterns your machine is looking for the patterns that's also no not that because you're just doing data-driven work and data-driven decision making is this obsession with companies what i'm trying to move companies to is data 3.0 which is looking for meaning in the data because that's how you make decisions is you have to be able to say out of these patterns i see that like there are 10 red spots well why did these red spots occur and the minute you they when you start asking why and why you eventually especially in a customer driven facing company where there's customers of all you eventually have to say well maybe it's because this became red because people woke up early this time or this customer did da, 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 da. you know you start to find out why and then you can get into the meaning of the data of like well it's not just that like. 10 red spots showed up here at this time, which is a pattern, is to say, what is the meaning? What is the why And that happened? And so that's what I wanna move companies to. And I think that enterprises have to do this because the way I see enterprises working is like they're, just, they're hiring our data scientists, throw them in the corner They're like go look for the patterns and then tell us what you find. When the real work is about communication in the data, when you're looking for meaning, you have to look for insights. And that's a whole different way of working. That means you don't just hire data scientists, actually the ratio of data scientists to what I call data translators or product managers or thick data people to data, um, you know, to, to just researchers, qualitative people, it should be way less. And we have way too many data scientists, not enough data translators. Um, not enough qualitative work happening, which is you need to find out the meaning. That quantitative data is not enough. So the premise is that, yes, if you have more data, you could get to better decisions, but what that data needs to lead to is better insights. And the insights is what takes you to decisions. The insights is what holds the meaning.
2: That brings back to the idea of the perspective shift and and talking to these companies about, you know, listening to understand and having the different perspective. Do you have
1: examples of where that's happened well so i think there's a lot of i mean samples of good and bad i mean we'll start with the great examples i think companies um like there's a really good comparison of like uh my business partner matt LeMay, wrote a really good article about that we'll post um I, I can send you the link about if you either of you play guitars i don't know but he's a big guitar player oh great okay so you're gonna love this article because he talks um in this article he talks about why gibson when became bankrupt right And his whole thing is like, why did Fender win and and Gibson go bankrupt? And. He just ascribes it to that Fender in the end was actually customer-centric and that they actually listened to their customers. And what Fender found out was that there was an evolution in the people who were learning how to play guitars, that they were women and they started to shift the, all their marketing and shift the kinds of products that they were making. And they actually did better targeting, did better storytelling, but they actually created more nuance in the way they talked about their product and sold their product. Whereas Gibson just never changed, you know, mm. um, but it was all this use of that was it was just obsessed about. They were just dependent on their quantitative data. And where a spender was like, you know what, if we're actually going to reach new customers, maybe we don't. The quantitative data is not going to tell us what to do. We need to go out and do ethnographic interviews. We need to go to talk to people. We need to go to forums and understand how people are talking, where people are asking advice, who are these people and why? And what's a changing profile? Um, so that's like an example where you can see it's like, here's in you know, the same industry, one company doing really well. Um, can, I a good example- can I jump on that? Yeah, Because I'm a please. massive
0: guitar fan and yeah. I'm trying to process it because I did see, and, and I didn't know the background to this, but I have seen Fender doing, you know, embracing technology. And teaching people, they have their own app where you can learn to play the guitar. And you're right, as soon as you said that, it was it's a female sitting there playing the guitar. So I was right. like, well, that's not a fluke that, that that happened. And with Gibson, to your point, um, so if I play it back really, really simply in my small little brain, I go, Gibson goes, wow, we're not selling as many guitars as we used to sell. Maybe we're not selling the right type of guitar. Maybe the pricing isn't right. Maybe And they stick to their same traditional methods of how they're doing their guitars. And what you're saying is Fender has gone out and asked the public and said, what else could we do? What's the trends? What's happening? Who could our new buyers be? Who are our existing buyers? And then discovering new opportunities and new markets. Is that basically, have I summarized it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what Gibson did was they invested like a shitload of money in innovation because they were like, oh, so we're losing money. And like, I think it's like, he went on as the CEO of Gibson Winnock, did an interview and he was like, we want to become like the Nike of music lifestyle. And it was just like totally um, disconnected to what customers really wanted was like, these are new customers. They don't want to become the Nike of music, lives. they just want to learn how to play the guitar. So just guide them through, like, these are new guitar players. These are not like rock stars or want to be rock stars. Uh, so I think that's why, like, yeah, you're, you actually now, I love that you noticed a difference, Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah. They're, they're big on their new technology. I have, I've seen it. It's great. I mean, Gibson do make good guitars just as a completely side note. So if they have gone bankrupt and I can pick up cheap guitars, please do let me know where to get one from the U S send one out. Cause, um, they do have a good sound, but anyway, they've completely missed the mark when it comes yeah. to their audience and their opportunity too.
1: totally. And like, you can tell in the quote from the CEO is that his conception of the of the customer is like this purist, right? That's what Matt talks about. It's like this purist guitar player who wants to become a rock star. um, And that was not their, like it totally failed to understand their customers. And if someone just said, hey, why don't you go do some research on our customers or potential customers? What's changed in the guitar landscape? What's changed in expectations around music and how people learn about instruments? I think they would have, they might be around still.
0: Is that a cultural change that made them different because you're just staring at data all the time as one company and you're going, oh, I don't know, drop the price or whatever. And the other company is going, what else could we... You said, ask why, ask why, ask why. That's one of the cultural principles of, of Dynatrace. They, their engineering team is like, ask five times why. So yeah. question, question, wow. question, 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 question. Get to the lowest possible common denominator of what the possibilities could be. Is that a cultural thing within Fender or within the companies that you work with that are getting it right? that it's a cultural thing to question the information that they're given in order to process it and going, it could be this, it could be that, it could be that, let's go test it, let's go ask.
1: I I absolutely agree that it's cultural, that the leadership has to first exemplify it, right? But also to make culture real, it has to be in practice. And that's why you have to have companies like like that's what you said, where it's like you could just name like we ha- ask why five times. Like, I love that. It's like everyone knows that is the thing you must do. And that's it's like tactical changes are the practices of what ma- uh, that make culture real. So it's not just something that lives abstractly, you know, yeah. um, and this is like what we do at our company. Set Encompass is like we go in and we teach organizations like, yes, like culturally, you want to. You know be close to your customers but we're going to make it real for you and by changing your actual practices of how you work together and how you communicate together and i think that's the nature of the beast of working with data inside an enterprise is that you can't afford to work alone because data scientists often come from agencies or single players they come from academic academia or they're used to working alone with their data set when you're in an enterprise not a small company when you're in an enterprise you actually have to collaborate and communicate with data in ways that you don't have to in a non-enterprise setting, in an SME or more in a agency setting. And so you have to pick up all these skills that data scientists don't have. And that's why like being data driven is not enough. You have to be insight driven because you have to be um, talking to the people who are closest to the customer. So the kind of science, data scientists that, or data translators that we're the profiles we're advising our clients to hire are like people who work well with let's say sales teams marketing teams yeah. with customer service people who are, who are, who aren't scared to be like let me go down to the call center and look at their logs and then go talk to the people about why their database of logs looked like this why were there like 30% more calls at this hour or the or the nature of the calls why were they more about problem solving you know server b right you got to talk to the people who are coaching your customers through and on the receiving end of being the most customer facing, you will learn so much from them. And so we're always like, in a organization, it's like very hierarchical. And we're always like, you got to even it out a little bit and like, give more power to the people who are closest. And like, by talking to them, elevating and lifting up their knowledge. And then the people on top have to learn how to come down a bit and talk to these people and learn from them who are most customer facing, who are not being paid the most because these people are paid the most.
0: Yeah. And let them, let them do it because it's the people often that are analyzing the data that, have a voice and have an opinion, but I've seen it in organizations where they get squashed because they're like, I just need an answer for the board. I don't have time for you to give me the possibilities. I need you just to give me what your best assumption is. But it's these people that are sort of, it's a different, if it's different mindset, it's a different cultural thing where it's like, well, it could be that. Go take your time to figure out what it possibly could be. Are you seeing that? Because it's like, in my head, I go like marketing operations people, amazing in Excel, amazing data people. Very interesting when you open them up, but they're potentially introverted and they're not given a voice. Let them have a voice. Let them have an opinion because they're closest to the data. But also that you're saying, get close, not just to the data, but get close to the customer and get close to the outcome, right?
1: Yeah, and like, Get close to the people who are close to the customer because they get close to the most customer-facing people in your org. A lot of organizations are looking for quick fixes. They want like like you said, a quick answer. And what we find is that all of these data like for some reason we have more dashboards, but we have we don't have less powerpoints. Like I ask every C-suite leader, this like, do you actually have less powerpoints in the in right now than you did before? Like now that we have more dashboards for you to look at. And no, it's like dashboards are just like being like people are just screenshotting or exporting their dashboards to put into more PowerPoints. And then just shit gets piled up where someone's like, give me a PowerPoint. And then they the the junior person makes it sends it back up like, oh, no, we need this. And it gets so politicized. And then everyone is like so obsessed with making PowerPoints as opposed to like actually learning how to communicate with data about people. And this is why like at sudden compass, we have a new, we have a practice, we have a tool and we we open source most of our tools eventually well, after we you know, use it with our clients. Cause we really believe that you shouldn't pay us for the tools you should pay us for our time and our expertise and our guidance. Mm-hmm. So we have a tool that's open, it's on a website it's called one hour one page.com. my business partner, Matt LeMay made it. And all it is is saying is that everyone we work with, but anyone in the world can take this pledge. It's that I promise to not work for more than one hour or one page before I share something. Mm. This means you can't work on a deck that is gonna be more than one hour page. You can't work on your universal data model for more than an hour, right? Or more than like a page of a self spreadsheet. You can't work on writing your algorithm or figuring out your weights. You can't work on any of this stuff for more than an hour or a page because this forces collaboration so if I tell you be collaborative you're going to be like great thanks bye yeah like I'm collaborative great (laughs) or if I tell you like be more communicative you're like I'm trying like what do you what do you want me to do differently you know but if I just tell you tactically please don't can you agree to this manifesto which is that if we're going to work together you don't do more than one hour or one page of work and that before sharing something people are like oh yeah I can do that And we don't have to mention the words collaboration, be more communicative, don't center yourself, you know, do more teamwork, because everyone's like, thanks, you know, I got it, like, I do all that stuff. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, I can do like one hour, one page, and then I'll definitely spit it back to you. And then no disclaimers are given like, oh, you know, really, I I only I didn't, I only spent a week on this. So let me know what you think And when you really don't want to know where you really don't want to know what people think, because you are so precious about this thing, this data model you've spent building up, you know? (laughs) May not make sense but you'll find out quickly if it's just one or one page
0: have you seen examples of companies that have made the switch because because isn't it like or or yeah. even just really good examples yeah. like i heard i don't know how true this is but i heard um jeff bezos wouldn't allow executives to come to the executive meeting with powerpoint presentations they had to it's basically tell me stories tell me you know what you're talking about and just tell me the story of what's going on do you have any anecdotes or stories of companies that have transitioned and the difference that it's made? Because there might be people listening now going, oh my God, that's me. We spend 30 hours a week pulling together a PowerPoint, PowerPoint. presentation, <laughs> for which the executive team spend all of about six minutes. They question like one data point. I've wasted 100 hours. Have you seen people make a transition and the difference it's made?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I could name our clients, you know, who we do coach them in this transition and this transformation. Uh, but I think more powerful is people who write to us. If you go to the one hour one page, you'll see the people who've signed the manifesto. But also there's so many people who just haven't signed it, but are doing the work of one hour one page. And when we hear from them and we ask for people to share your templates of like anything that is useful to you, you know, we have a um, a communication manual on the site that, you know, we we shared and other people shared their templates of like they have seen massive changes on in their company just by in their own team or their own department just by saying hey all we're going to do one hour one page pledge you know i've seen it on projects where just even me being brought brought onto a project i say you know we're gonna let's all sign this manifesto it's it's really incredible um so i would say that the change is real and it happens quickly and that's why you don't even need to hire us to tell you do this that's why we're like it's on the website it's online just go to it sign it and do it start now (laughs)
0: Uh, so i was on this i was going to touch on the pandemic because i think we people are ready for change because we just as a society went through the uh, in our lifetime the biggest going through. oh still going yeah. through one of the biggest changes so i think now is a good time to make a change and go you know what the old normal was not cool the new normal forget it let's get rid of all the crap we used to do and let's do something completely different because we've all had to go through that change is that what you're seeing in the pandemic are you seeing any of that at the moment or getting an essence of like yep I'm ready let's do something different
1: absolutely I mean I the way I talk about this this is where my tech ethnographer hat comes on is that my analysis my meta-analysis of what's happening um, is that we are living in a moment of spatial collapse And what I mean by that is that our mental models, we may not talk about it consciously, but we have a mental model for how we organize ourselves around space. So for centuries, the way we've organized around space is that first space is home and you do your home stuff at home. Like you cut your nails, you take your shower at home. Right. And then there's second space. That's work. You leave your home. You put on work clothes. You know, you don't just go in the bathrobe like you put on work clothes. You go to work. And you do work stuff there. You don't Netflix when you're at work. You do that at home. And then there's stuff that happens outside of work and home. And that's third space. And that's the public. That's social space. That's where you can be anonymous. It's where you can go to a bar. You can go to a dance club. You can be at a park or library, all that stuff where you're outside of your home identity and your work identity, right? And for centuries, all those spaces were very, very stable. This actually came out of the industrial revolution. That's the creation of first, second, third space. It came out of the UK, home of industrial revolution, where people were forced off of their lands through enclosure. They moved into factories and all of a sudden factory became this thing outside of home you know outside of their own piece of land and you had a whole bursting an opening of new types of businesses that came out of third space to serve this whole new industrial revolution life you know you had bars clubs like all of these things came out of third spaces out of the industrial revolution so that stuff that what we've been doing over the last couple of centuries is completely done now right now where i'm standing first space is home second space is work Third space is also my social life. It is completely these three spaces that were neatly, you know, separate, have collapsed um, onto each other and jumbled and mumbled. And that means one of the things I'm looking at is what, what does this mean for how we work with digital interfaces? What does this mean for our expectations around our digital interactions with our data? Without now that we're spending more time in 2D space, what are our expectations for all this data that's been captured about us and being used? And I think, I mean, yeah, I'm going to stop there. But the point is, yes, I think we're in the middle of a historical change. It's called a spatial collapse. We haven't seen one for two cent- couple centuries. We're in one now. We're still in it. And everything is changing.
0: You've come up with ethnographer. You've come up with thick data, <laughs> which I haven't covered yeah this is a revolution this is like a is it spatial, spatial collapse, collapse or are you going to come up and with a name and you're going to we're going to run with it because this is a <laughs>
1: that's it that's the name spatial collapse, spatial collapse. We are, is there, that what there have been past yeah there's been past spatial collapses and now we're just living in a spatial collapse and it's never it's not good or bad it's always like there's always shitty things that come out of spatial collapse. There's also like really amazing things like in a spatial collapse or industrial revolution, like there was kidnapping of slaves, you know, that was a spatial collapse to feed Mm. the industrial revolution. Right. Um, There was also through that the invention of insurance on a life for the insurance of 18 months, but that's where life insurance comes from, you know? So it's it's, none of these things can be just attributed to like binary good or bad. Um, But out of that also came women's rights, you know, and also like all of that came democracy, um nation states so the point is is that right now we have to it's not even like what is going to stick it's more like what is the paradigm shift and i'm really looking at the paradigm shifts around expectations around data how companies are responding to that so yeah i think this is like it's massive like i get overwhelmed at night thinking about this
0: we can write the new rules of the spatial collapse the new rule of the spatial collapse is you're allowed to drink champagne at breakfast whilst working (laughs) and netflix with friends that's the third word. Yeah, a third and world you're allowed to
1: do Zoom calls without pants on because yeah. no one gives a shit.
0: Yeah. These are the new rules <laughs> Definitely got pants of the spatial collapse. <laughs> oh, love it. Pants are on.
2: Check. <laughs> Department, <laughs> Department of thought, the
0: Unknown. Department of the Unknown. We should talk about that. This oh, is it. mysterious. I know. It sounds really mysterious. Tell de- de- us. Go on, you go. I go Department <laughs> of the Unknown. What is this? <laughs>
1: Claire, I love it. You're like the one who like brings up these little she, words, and you're like, "Now you go one. figure it out."
0: Yeah, she's yeah. the smart one. She's like, she's "I see
1: who's guiding it." it. I know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm, I see who's in control. Yeah, I'm just a talking head. <laughs> yeah. she's probing me, going like, "Talk about this now."
1: Yeah. Um, you've got the easiest job, Claire, <laughs> and the funnest one. <laughs> um, now, I this so the Department of the Unknown is a talk that I gave about how I think every company needs to have a Department of the Unknown, and I don't literally mean like have a PL and you know in your organization literally have a Department known, but you should know who is accountable for telling you the unknown, what you don't know. And the reason why this is important is because in a, in an enterprise, in particular, in enterprises but I would think in like SMEs also, you know, is that like everything you do inside a company is built up to help you see the world from your perspective so that you can persevere and so that you can succeed. It is to serve either your shareholders. It is to serve your employees. You're here to serve your existing customers. Right? But it's from your perspective of what you think is best. And you're so busy running the company and keeping it going that its it becomes harder and harder to actually find out what you don't know. And what you don't know could disrupt you. It could be your next 10 years of growth or it could be your death. And so if you wanted to be your growth, you need to have people on top of that. And you need it to be someone's job a team's job to tell you that. And that team needs to be very integrated also with the existing businesses. You know, there's a lot of times people thought, well, you, I can just make an innovation function mm-hmm. and keep it far away, which I get the reason why it needs to be protected and far away. But oftentimes, if there's not enough a close of a link to be close to the existing customers and new customers, then all that skunk work that is done is never brought into the existing organization. It becomes this like fight over, you know, are we cannibalizing our existing business? And that's why it's important to have always the existing organization must be invested in the department of the unknown so that you can meaningfully and and efficiently negotiate that hard tricky thing of you know do we cannibalize or at what point does the new new product interfere with our existing product and how do you make that transition meaningfully that has there has to be investment um from the existing leadership
2: that sort of makes me think of the tesco story what was it that they would put a, a personalized pricing point on their products what were they trying to do
0: manipulate like, to and me, get more market share from yeah. people that have more money <laughs> but to me it's like doesn't disaster. it's not practical at no, all to, to, to yeah. simplify maybe and and trisha you tell us how this works but in my head this is how i was processing it i have a little bit more money they profile me as more money therefore i get charged more for bananas than someone who doesn't have as much money which doesn't yeah. seem fair and eventually, yeah. if people find out about it, they're going to get angry about it. Yeah. Is that an example of like how to analyze data and not put common sense on top of it?
1: Yeah, it's an example of when a bunch of data scientists were in a room and they said, we have an idea because we've been tasked with increasing the ROI of Tesco, which makes sense, right? It was their job. And they came up with an idea that I think totally makes sense in their own world, which is that if we we have so much data now for a loyalty card, if we just make sure that we can untie, you know, we can actually offer personalized pricing because we have enough demographic information about each customer, so we can offer personalized pricing. Because customers are are accustomed to it with Uber, with Lyft, you know, with Amazon, that pricing changes every day. But they're like, we'll just personalize it and make it feel personal (laughs) because that's what you can do. It's but just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. And they just never bothered asking how would customers feel about this. And it's not like they didn't have the ethnographers and the market researchers. know there or even just talk to the salespeople or cashiers it's just that the data scientists were siloed off in another office in another floor Mm. and the leadership thought if we we have enough data we'll we're going to make better decisions now they never questioned to think how do we communicate about this internally and with others how do we make sure that we collaborate in a way where we are taking advantage of the trust um and not ruining the trust you know (laughs) Because data, I say, always is the currency for trust. Right now, when we're talking about trust, it's like so abstract, but it's like we've gotten to the point where what you do with customers' data is the is your you're setting the standards for trust, and so that is a currency. If you screw up on trust, you just completely went into debt. Yep. <laughs> if you're with your data, if you screw up on data, you screw up on trust. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that's come out of the spatial collapse is that because we're spending our time like this more more time in two D space, I think people have develop much greater awareness for what is personal data what is theirs and what companies are doing with their personal data that maybe this this thing we've been promised which is that freemium has been an okay business model like facebook like Robinhood, maybe it's not so free maybe um Mm -hmm. it's going to be used against us and that's why i think the robin hood gme um situation it was so 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 such a set such a precedence because you know here's this like free investing platform but what they're really doing is selling your data to you know hedge funds so that they and it's like well doesn't how, how don't we talk about that in terms of unequal you know with information arbitrage and so i think everyone is just becoming more aware of what is personal data and we're we're having more discussions and more nuance about it so what companies could do with people before is changing People's expectations are changing. Some are becoming more suspicious and some are just downright like, get me out of here. And that's the yep. danger, you know, if people won't even, like people just don't trust your app to use it or trust your platform.
0: Yeah, so one of the things you're saying, if I summarize, and then I want to touch on one thing about this this data point that you just made, get close to the customer and ask the questions and, and, and of people who aren't your customers yet to really understand what's going on. If I could really summarize it and go data is one thing and you need it, but you've got to go and ask questions of people, get their stories, understand why. Is that basically pretty simple? I would say that.
1: I would say big data is one thing, quantitative data, numbers, data that shows up in a database because, but in order to make numbers show up in a spreadsheet or in database, I don't care how big your database is, it's the same thing. It's just a fancy spreadsheet. You have to normalize, you have to standardize, and you have to cluster. You have to do all those things to clean the data to show up in a spreadsheet or a large warehouse so that you can use it in that lake, right? That's quantitative data. There's a whole other set of data that I call thick data, which is just qualitative data. It's data that comes in the form of stories. It's it's tears, it's smiles, it's those things that don't fit in a spreadsheet. That's just as much, that's data too. That is also data. It's just when we say data, most people automatically think only quantitative data. And I'm saying it is quantitative, it is big data, it is qualitative, it is thick data. It is that ethnographic material, the stories that you would gather. Inside most organizations, they only want the big data and they devalue the qualitative, the thick data. Worse off, they don't even integrate it. So that's what we're telling companies that they have to do is you have to value both and then you have to integrate it. And that means new skills around research, around collaboration and around communication. And and to summarize also the other point you are saying is that they, they had a good business question, Tesco. Most companies know the business question that keeps them up at night, which is like, how do we get more customers? How do we make more money? Yeah. More or less like every business question comes down to that. Their fault was they didn't do what um, a, a tool that we also created that is now open source. It's on the Google Design site. Um, it's free; anyone can download it. But it's turning your business question into a human question, so that you don't abandon the business question because you do need to make money. But the human question is just as important. So mm-hmm. if the business question was like, "How do we make more? How do we make more money um, off of loyalty cards?" You know, that's a business question. A human question could it be it could have been like, "How to? What are people's relationships with grocery stores?" Mm-hmm. How do people think about loyalty cards to begin with? How do people shop? How do people choose who to trust? Those are all human questions, right? And we're saying those two things need to be imbalanced and identified so that, and articulated so that you can negotiate them together as, a data, as an integrated data team so you can come up with the best insight and a set of recommendations for business decision makers to take. None of that happened at Tesco. At most companies, they are winging it. I don't see that always happening. Some companies are doing it great. And I think that the companies that continue doing this more will be the ones who will succeed. And people are demanding it. I think people have been able to get away, companies have been able to get away with it because honestly people's expectations and understanding of data has not been very nuanced. But I, I think that's changing as companies are diversifying their customers and people are getting smarter. I think comp- like customers do wanna know and they're gonna start getting more vocal.
0: So these AIs, the the evolution of AI, artificial intelligence is coming for that quantitative data which is giving the humans more time to spend on the thick data. Is that a good assumption of what what is happening or or the opportunity that could present to us as a result of an AI?
1: I think that the best thing about AI is that it is using machine intelligence. But the way to get the most out of that machine intelligence is to complement it with human intelligence. And so a lot of the companies that I'm looking at, for example, are really looking into saying we want to work with less data. There's a whole area of work that i think in this spatial collapse where companies are, are having much more honest conversations about like well how much data do you really need so like for example um you know jenna egger is from naralogics talks about how you know she offers predictive analysis she does like matchmaking and, and capabilities inside companies they have some of the most advanced algorithmic work but what she says to her clients is we won't build you a data model until we talk to your humans we want if we're like let's say building like you know um a matching system for like car parts. Well, we want, we want to talk to your salespeople who are selling those car parts. We want to talk to them. And that's talking to the experts um, who have those domain expertise. I think that's the future, which is so there's two things. One is working with the least amount of data as possible. She actually says that to her customers. Like their team says, we want to work with the least amount of data as possible because then that's how we can identify what's working or not. We can always layer more data in this in later, but don't give us too much work with least. The other thing that she's doing is that they actually don't want that much customer data. They want data about the product and just a few questions about the customer because they don't want to hold all that customer data. And the third thing that I think is interesting is that she's wanting to work with experts and that's the human model. And that's where I think companies need to totally change the way they're doing, especially if you're working with algorithms is that they're jumping straight to the data model and they're skipping over the human model part. So for example, there are so many companies where I go in and I'm like, they're like, come in and help us analyze what's happening. I'm like, show me your data model. They're like, what? But like, yeah, show me your spreadsheet, wherever you capture your universal data model, unless do data mapping. Let's look at your quantity. Like, what are the variables you collect? Let's look at the algorithm. Let's look how you weight each thing. And then I'm going to ask you why about each uh, each variable. And that all those variables, all those data points come from a human being. You know, and so you have to build a data model for your product, but you have to make sure that's based on actual human behavior. So if your data model says like, we're going to capture what time people wake up, well, it better match that people do something about like, that's a meaningful data point, And you have to find out from the humans, is that a, you know, is that a variable we should capture? So I always advise companies like start with a human model first. That's how you should build your data model to, to really reflect and match that human model. And I, I think the future is in companies who are going to be doing that.
0: I love it. That's so, it it gives us hope for people that like, I mean, I'm someone, the empathy side of understanding humans and how it works and not just analyzing the data. So it's good to know there's hope for all of us who are the humans out there in the future. I can't help it though, because I was almost hoping that the pessimism is, I've got to ask this question. Oh (laughs) no. So you're talking about great examples of where people are leveraging an AI and then you need to leverage human and things like this. What about government departments, military organizations, mil- like people that are using data and making the wrong assumptions? Is there a possible threat to humanity, to society, to...
2: It's a big question.
0: It is a, its is. <laughs> I've got to throw the one pessimistic question in there. But are there people that are taking data, making wrong assumptions and could potentially kill people?
1: Oh. It it already is happening. We've been doing that. You know, we miss, I mean, in so much of what the U.S. was doing in the Middle East was, for example, using quantitative data points, um, thinking they could track people's cell phone usage and they would send missiles and kill those people. However, if you talk to any anthropologist, they and, you know, I've been researching cell phone use for a while. I know that people switch SIM cards Mm -hmm. in a family. If you can only if you can't afford to have everyone has a phone. People switch SIM cards, or people share cell phones. Also, and so you've had so many stories of missiles killing the wrong people. You know, not even the, and maybe the original person was even shouldn't have been killed. But the point is, is that mm-hmm. that's an example where the data model made an assumption of like, oh, if we just have cell phone coordinates about the cell phone, because you know that's what we're we've been tracking. But the human models, like the human behavior around cell phone usage and chip sharing, um, SIM card sharing, and actual cell phone sharing, doesn't match your assumptions in your data model, you just killed the wrong person. This happens all the time, <laughs> all the time. And it's happening right now with facial recognition is that we um, we have evidence that machine learning facial recognition doesn't perform as well on non-white faces. Yeah. And here we are, we have all these Police, at least in the U.S., right? I'm going to speak to our context. I've only researched this here, but police departments are, for meaningful good reasons, they're saying we want to be more efficient and, you know, identifying um, a bad actor. Get that? I cool, great. I want, I want that too. But in reality. These softwares are misidentifying, wrongfully accusing, mismatching um, crimes to Black men um, and to the wrong Black men. And so we have all these cases in the U.S. where black men have been wrongfully arrested for murder for robberies um you have because of either because of facial recognition or um because of geolocation data that wasn't attributed correctly so all of this stuff is not it's all stuff we haven't worked out in the analog life because that's because a lot of these systems are embedded with racism you may not ask about race but if you have racial profiling that's embedded into zip code data you don't have to ask about race this zip code if you live in the zip code and there happened to be more racial profiling, you're going to be more highly targeted. So the point is that all these things weren't, it's not created by AI. These were problems we had in our offline physical lives, but now they're just augmented because we never fixed it in our physical spaces, right? It's just now in our spatial collapse, we're all living in 2D space more often and all of these things are negotiated over the time. So that's why- That's why I always say these issues are not just over privacy. If only these data issues were about violations of privacy, which is about control of data or leakage of data, it'd be so easy to resolve. What's really at stake with AI, with all of these problems, is that our personhood is at risk our livelihood is at risk. Our ability to be a person is at risk if the machine misreads you, because we have made the world more legible. The world is a database, but just because you've made the world a database, it doesn't mean it makes the world better. And we have to find that we have to develop new mechanisms and new tools to make the world safe, to counterbalance all the problems that come from making the world more legible. And that's why I think we have to talk about these things are not just violations of privacy they are violations of personhood because they can put your life at risk if you get wrongfully arrested your ability to get a job after that you know is affected
0: yeah what are we going to do about it if it's already happening i mean you've you've touched on a point that is really passionate and these people shouldn't be making assumptions or or and to your point you said this facial recognition isn't a bad thing it's just not ready And it's not tested out on the main public and people then shouldn't be using the data and making assumptions and wrongfully accusing people what can be done to stop it
1: i mean i think what needs to happen is we need to have a plurality of voices and well researched work i think podcasts like this one are incredibly important because you're not just saying we're only going to talk about technology and not talk about its impact on society for so long we could we could we told engineers and computer scientists don't worry about application just worry about building the code which is like code is life now yeah. if everything is digital that means we, we are code we're living in it and so I think it's first it's like conversations like this that make it easy for people to understand but we need to be funding research institutions we need to have um, we but, Really, ultimately, what I think needs to happen is all this research on ethics, none of it's going to work unless we bring it inside companies and into the product. Now, I don't mean hire a chief ethicist to make yourself feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do not mean that. I mean, great, you can have that as a person to start the conversation, in the culture. But what I mean is you need to have ethnographers, you need to have people who understand people on your teams and making changes telling the PMs and the engineers so that co- change could be made in the code right away or to reflect or flag something right away and to make room for those kind of voices. Uh, and I think, I think what I'm scared about is inside tech companies, especially where a lot of this power lies, is that they're firing the very people they brought in. You know, Timnit Gebru was fired at Google for raising the fact that their algorithms were actually hurting people. And so I think, you know, some wow. of the best voices yeah. of our times are being co-opted by tech companies. They're hiring research scientists who are critical. And then once they're too critical, they get fired. Or, or you just start to quiet your voice too because your, your income depends yeah. on them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the people so, that are asking the question and challenging the the system—they're uh, th- disruptive, but they're correctly disruptive. They're disruptive for yeah. a reason. They're not doing it because they're being painful. I they're doing they're it because they have morals and they believe. Right? That's scary. Bring yeah,
2: the, the ethic question back into the companies. You don't have regulation for this, really. That's the thing. Like you have regulation mm-hmm. for banking, and yeah, yeah, you know, it's an
0: unknown, unknown yeah. territory. Trisha, I've been blown away by this conversation and, and i hope our audience is as well what are you working on what can we look forward to that you've got and can you share it
1: yeah i'm happy to talk about what i'm working on in terms of blockchain and cryptocurrency research is that i first of all i'm very passionate about cryptocurrency because i think it's a form of wealth accumulation um and it's the largest forms of wealth explosion that has happened i would say since the um since the uh, social media, where tech companies capture people's data, that was a wealth explosion around advertising. A bunch of people became rich. And then with Industrial Revolution, with slavery, all that stuff, a bunch of people also became rich. And so you have all these area, eras where it's like explosions of wealth. And it's always usually been very concentrated. Right. It's only certain people, usually men, usually white men, who were able to benefit from it. And I think for the first time, blockchain, cryptocurrency, this there's a new form of wealth explosion that isn't as concentrated and isn't as exploitive, also, that there's an opportunity where it's like anyone could potentially invest in it. However, I really care about crypto literacy, which is that if half of the world is financially excluded, that means we can't onboard people onto crypto and they're missing out. And so I'm really excited about blockchain design, about how do you make blockchain more accessible? um, Um, cryptocurrency more accessible. I'm also really excited about DAO's decentralized autonomous organizations that are being run by algorithms. You know, there's a lot of discussion about like the algorithmic CEO, where literally the DAO is a public ledger, where you can automate um, contracts and smart chains and all the stuff that's like either on chain or off chain, like it's getting really complex. All these new technologies are being developed to enable this stuff. Um, But the whole world has changed And I think part of it has to do with spatial collapse is that one of the things that happens with spatial collapse is you start to question current institutions. And I think with we see all this money printing and inability for the government to actually respond to people's needs, I think people are actually questioning the strength of the U.S. dollar, the utility of a fiat currency and the limitations of it. And do we need a international settlement um, currency? And this is going to change the way enterprises work. And I think all of these questions around algorithmic decision making Decentralized, like all of the problems we have now that we just talked about. Imagine a enterprise that literally is working without people, that is just automated based on algorithms that were pre-written, pre-decided, so that it can execute automatically. I mean, it's fucking freaks me yeah. out. And so not I'm mis- like, we got to research this to study it.
0: <laughs> I thought I was the doomsday one. That one there, that enterprise <laughs> that's basically no, no humans, humans running it, it's yeah. freaking me out. You're not serious. Yeah.
1: We got to look into this, this is, um, I'm excited for what's going to come out of it. Um, It's just so complex, it's not just about crypto, it's also about blockchain, it's about organizations, it's also about art with all the explosion of niftys. It's like every day my mind explodes, but I think this is really where we're thinking, if we want to look at the future of data and algorithms, we have to understand how blockchain is part of the stack, not just like blockchain itself, but part of a stack, But what does it actually enable and how do these questions that we just talked about get worked out through that? You had me. I at, try to keep it concise. <laughs> you had me
0: at like the next way to get rich is, and then I was like lost for about 20 seconds. I had to go down and get my pen to write <laughs> down going, down. What, what do I have to do to get rich again? Was it blockchain and crypto? I'll go research yes. that. And well,
1: well, I'll tell you right now, you need to start doing DCA dollar cost averaging on Bitcoin. Hold in Bitcoin, hold long. Um, slow, um, down, Trisha, slow down,
0: slow down, slow down. <laughs> say that again. <laughs> trisha thank you very much for being part of this uh podcast it's been absolutely enthralling And good luck with your move and move safely
1: thank you yeah.
0: and we'll get you down to australia at some point hopefully
1: <gasps> please Yay. because you all look like you're living freely and living your best lives and I, i'm so jealous i want that <laughs> Bye. bye